0: Hugh Syme, a world-renowned graphic artist with the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business.
1: Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm Andy Wilson, one of your hosts, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane, how's it going? Hey, Andy, how you doing? Awesome. And also Hugh Syme, How you doing today, Hugh? And well, thank you, Andrew. Thank you, thank you, guys, as always. (laughs) So we have an awesome guest today. As always, we have great guests. Uh, Dave Burgess, the legendary Dave Burgess from the group The Champs, um, after an incredible 62 years topping the Billboard Pop and R&B charts with a Grammy Award-winning song, Tequila. I mean, that song alone has been in so many movies, TV shows. I actually, when I told my kids we were going to talk to Dave, I said, you know, the song Tequila, and they all started humming it. And, you know, my kids range from like little bitty kids all the way up to 16. Everybody knows that song. It's like the ultimate party song, right? So anyway, so we're going to talk to Dave about his songs, about the champs, et cetera, et cetera, in his career. And he's also an experienced band leader and musician. Dave's forte has always been that of a songwriter. He has over 700 copyrights registered with BMI. 700. That's a lot. Those who have waxed his tunes include Dean Martin. That's twice the
2: Beatles. Excuse
1: me. No no kidding. Those who have waxed some of his tunes include Dean Martin, Bing Crosby, Lou Rawls, The Letterman, Anne Murray, Engelbert Humperdinck, Ray Price, Glenn Campbell, Johnny Rivers, Gene Vincent, on and on and on. Rick Nelson recorded 10 of Dave's compositions. Wow. Anyway, so just amazing. In 1965, after A bustling seven years, Dave called a halt and disbanded the group. The Champs had a great run at various times during their existence. Members of the Champs also included Glenn Campbell, Delaney Delaney Bramlett of uh, the famous Delaney and Bonnie, um, and also Jimmy Seals and Dash Cross, Seals and Cross. Dave moved on to other projects over the years, and for over 40 years, he's managed the publishing affairs of the one and only Hank Williams, Jr., creating a multi-million dollar business. He's also received numerous rewards from ASCAP, BMI, and Cashbox. So without further ado, welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Dave Burgess. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. I really am. Yeah, thank you. So the way that we break this down is when we started to, to do this podcast, what Dan and Hugh and I realized that we, re- we really like to talk. We like to tell stories. We like to listen to stories. Tell each other stories. And the unique thing about us in the music business is we all have these different backgrounds. So Hughes is more on the graphic design and artist side, although he's an amazing musician who's who's played on Rush records and other stuff and created these amazing artwork for bands over the years, right, for their record covers. Dane Clark has been the drummer be, behind the John Mellencamp band since 1996, right? Dane. 1996. Yep. Right. And 20, myself. Five years and, almost. Yeah, and myself, I've been in the uh, on the in the concert and live experience side of the business, promoting shows of the biggest names you can think of um, for for over twenty years. Wow. So we get together and talk about the stories behind you know all of these great songs and all these great records and these great artists that have uh, that appeared over the years. So we're so glad you're joining us today. Uh, Dane's going to kick us off with some questions, and um, we'll get things rolling. So thanks again for joining us, Dave.
2: Okay. I just want to mention something. Sure. I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but we used to talk about it all the time. Drummers have their own personalities. You can tell a drummer by the personality. They're more outgoing. Violinists are very introverted. Mm-hmm. Have you ever noticed things like that? Drummers, for you sure. better believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought you might want to hear that. <laughs>
0: yeah. That's very true. I I find that uh, over the years. I would say of us 3 Dane is the
2: mouthiest. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no oh, question. Yeah. The biggest try troublemaker, to, no doubt about it. Yes. To,
0: <laughs> they tell me to be quiet a lot, but hey. He does. But I never do. I never listen.
2: But he's also <laughs> the premier musicologist. I, I would say of all of us too. I
0: Absolutely. think so probably, but uh yeah. But wow. Uh Dave, such a such a pleasure to have you on here. Thank 700 you. copyrights. You've been a busy guy. You've been a, well, well, I've been writing for a long time. It, well, it, since obviously, so Tequila was, you recorded it in 1957, correct? Correct. That's right. Originally. Um, yes. And you probably did. Did you have songs before that?
2: Yes. Um, and actually in, 1950, in 1957, I had uh, see it was four nights at a big hit old oh, baby. mine, And I had the follow up to it with gratefully yours. I was just a teenager at the time. And I also wrote and produced uh, a song called I'm Available with yeah. uh, Margie Rayburn on Liberty Records. That okay. was my first production. And it sold a million records. And, and uh, that was a big kick for me being a kid from Palmdale, California. Uh, actually, I was raised on a ranch. Everybody in my area that went to school with me from the time I was a kid um, was from the uh, Dust Belt area. We They were... Families moved to Bakersfield, Lancaster, Palmdale, California, to get away from Oklahoma and Texas and Arkansas and places where they extreme poverty. So they came to California to try to join together and and get ahead. And they all played the guitar and sang. And I was just blown away with all the songs and and the guitar playing and this way they sang. And coming from California, you know, uh, I wasn't born a country boy. I became one. Gladly. And, uh, uh, I decided I wanted to write songs. So I started writing when I was about 14 or 15. And uh, of course the first songs were not very good. And, uh, then when I was, uh, let's see, I guess I was 16, a radio station opened in Lancaster, California called K A V L. And I heard about it and I thought I would love to be on the radio and that would be a big kick. I'm still going to high school and it would be a fun thing to do. So I called the, uh, station manager his name was herb comstock and i said that i write and sing and i live in bondale i'd like you to hear me and maybe you could put me on the air so he said well come on down to the station so i did took my white harmony guitar and i sang a couple songs for me he put me on the air immediately and the phones lit up so he said you want your own show I i would love to have my own show so they gave me a 30 minute show every sunday afternoon after church so I did that for a while, and I thought, you know, I should be making something doing this. So I went to Herb, and I said, uh, can you get me a sponsor? And he said, you're too young to sell commercials. And I said, well, uh, give me some contracts, and I'll go sell myself. So he did, and I went, and I got a Siemens, Gettys, Lincoln, Mercury, and Lancaster. I got my school clothes from Herman Gold's Fashion Tailors in Lancaster. Uh, I got an uh, optometrist to sponsor 15 minutes and somebody else, oh, Budden Carpe's Chevron gas station in Palmdale, give me gas from my car. And I made a few bucks and it wound up being an hour, then an hour and a half. And uh, from that, we went on to a little club in uh, Mint Canyon, California. And we were there five nights a week while I'm going to school. And at age 17 in my senior year, I signed with Columbia Records. And uh, I was all excited and thought, oh, boy, this is going to be great. I'm going to be on Columbia Records. And uh, got my contract. I had a manager, Gabby Lutzenheller, who had Lawrence Welk and Liberace and Johnny Ray and a bunch of people. And uh, I was making my demos at Gold Star. I was the first one who never caught a hit at Gold Star Records in, in uh, Hollywood. Wow. And uh, I'm Available it was the first hit that came out of there, actually. And, uh, of course, you know, that became the number one studio in the world. It was just sure, yeah, hit. absolutely monster hits. Yep. A wall of sound came out of that studio, actually, with Stan Ross. And uh, I was glad to be a part of the beginning of that. Um, anyway, they did a record with me. Some guys came in from New York and did a record with me, and they tried to make a Frank Sinatra out of me, which I was not. And I didn't want to do the songs, and I said, these are not my kind of songs. And they said, "We'll just do them. We'll produce you and tell you what to do, and it'll be fine. Well, I did what they told me. They put the record out and it dropped like a rock. And uh, so I, I was disappointed. But then, you know, they say things always happen for the best. I went back to Gold Star and I was doing some demos and there was a young fella in the uh, studio room and in mean, the control room. And he said, uh, he came out after, uh, after I finished my first song. And he said, do you have a manager? I said, no. He said, do you have a publisher? I said, no. He said, do you have a record deal? I said, no. He said, well, I'm all three. I'm with Gene Autry. And his name was Joe Johnson, and, and a very clean-cut, nice-looking guy. And I figured Gene Autry. Wow! So I said, I, I, "I'm happy to do whatever you need me to do. I'd love to be with with, with Gene Autry. That would be a big thrill for me. He's my idol." So uh, they gave me all those contract contracts, all three: publishing, management, records deals, everything. So I was the first artist signed to Challenge Records, which was Gene Autry's label, and. Uh, Put out a couple of records, one with Jerry Wallace and one with me. Uh I had Maybell going up the charts when tequila came out. to killed tequila killed Maybell dead. In fact, it killed everything because they put everything behind tequila. They could see what they had. And tequila uh was a strange way it was recorded. Uh there's been a lot of stories from a lot of different people about they were there, the how it was done at the end of a session. All those things are not true. Uh <laughs> I had heard Raunchy. Mm, sure. And I love that record. I mean, I thought that was the greatest thing I'd ever heard. So I said, I'd like to write a song like that. So I went back home and I worked for a couple of weeks and I wrote a song called Train to Nowhere. Played it for my manager. He said, that's great. Let's record that. And I said, well, I, I don't have a band. He said, well, we'll put a band together for you. He says, I heard the sax player. Uh, his name is Danny Flores. He's been playing in bars and strip clubs, all up and down the West Coast. He said, let me take you out there and hear Danny and see if he's what you're looking for. So we did. And boy, he was exactly what I was looking for. What a talent. And uh, so I asked him if he'd like to play on my record. And he said, sure. And I said, okay, let's meet at 6920 Sunset Boulevard. That's Gene Autry's building. And uh, we'll rehearse it and get it the way we want it and we'll set up a session. So we did. Called the manager in. He came up. He heard it my also my a&r man produced my records the sales manager and the national promotion manager they all came up and they heard train and nowhere and they said that's great one problem dave we've got to have a b-side something on the other side i said give us a half an hour we'll come up with a b side so i started playing this riff on the guitar and the guitar player started playing this ticking sound and danny floor started playing this melody i don't know where it came from we later found out but at the time it just worked and uh So Buddy Bruce, uh, the guitar player, said, I have an idea for a bridge. So he showed me his da 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 I said, that's great. Danny, are you happy with that? He said, yeah. And I said, why don't we stop at the end of that? Danny always carried a flask of tequila with him. And he talked (laughs) like man. uh," He had a real whiskey voice. So I said, why don't we stop and let Danny see tequila? It just might be funny. So we decided to do that, called everybody up, and they said, come Up and hear it, and they said that's great, great B side. So we went in and recorded. And of course, in those days, you, you did a three hour session, as you guys all have been aware of. Yep. You could do four songs. We spent two hours and 55 minutes on Train to Nowhere, did one take on tequila. I said that's good enough, and here we are. Wow, <laughs>
1: that's great!
0: B side, yeah, the B side,
1: B side, wow. one take. Wow, yeah. yeah. yeah
2: and somebody you know that train to nowhere was going up the charts it was doing great and then um there was a disc jockey in cleveland that happened to flip the record and listen to it and he said that's great so he he called a f- band member of, uh, a friend of his by the name of eddie platt and they came in and they recorded tequila and put it out on abc paramount and it took off and started going up the charts they played it at that station i can't remember what station it was it was the big station in cleveland though Uh, I'm sure you guys remember, for a period of time in the 50s and 60s, sometimes stations would play one song for 24 hours, nothing else. That's all you would hear. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the station across town took our record and flipped it over and played it for 24 hours straight. So that's all you heard in Cleveland for 24 hours was tequila. And ours (laughs) took off. Eddie Platt's went in the charts, but it didn't – surpassed it and it was at that time it was the fastest number one record in the world ever wow. of course, the beatles have beat us out and lots of other groups since then but uh at that time that was the fastest and uh, here i am with no band danny's back in the bars again and playing and i saw so I, I called danny and i said would you like to come on tour with me. We've got all these offers up and down the coast and things. He said, sure. I said, bring your guitar player and your drummer, Gene Alden. And uh, uh, the the uh, drummer went, the guitar player didn't, so we had to hire a bass player. We wound up with Van Norman as our bass player, Dale Norris as our guitar player. And we started touring. We did the Dick Clark show. We did the Ed Sullivan show and did all the things that you're supposed to do to get a record off the ground, and, and it worked. Yeah. And uh, thankfully, and then problems started. We're playing to teenagers and had a little problem with Danny being a great musician and a great guy. You can't tell the same jokes to teenagers and do the same things that you do in strip clubs. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I, I called a meeting one morning and, and I don't remember where we were, but I I called a meeting. I said, let's, let's have breakfast and we'll talk. And I said, Danny, I'm going to buy you a ticket back and any of the guys that want to go back with you, I said, I, I'm going to have to let, let you go. And I'm going to have to put a band together some way or another. He said, well, the whole band will go with me. Well, the only one that went with him was Gene Alden. They'd been classic friends for years. The drummer was Gene Alden was great. And uh, so I had to find musicians quickly. I had a week off. So I called a friend of mine by the name of Slim Willett. Uh, the name probably doesn't mean anything to you but the song he wrote Don't Let the Stars Get in Your Eyes was a number one hit Perry Como a lot of people Mm -hmm. I called him and he said uh, yeah I've still got a a line on these two kids they're teenagers 16 and 17 he says they're playing in a bar down here in Midland, Texas he said uh, one's from Rankin and one's from Cisco Seals and Crofts. he said let me send them to you so I said great I'll meet them in uh, Mississippi somewhere I don't know natchez mississippi i think it was and uh, so we had a week we had to get instruments for them get them closed so we could be on stage together jimmy only could play honky talk on his sax that's all he could play and it was an alto sax we had to get him a tenor sax (laughs) and we were pretty much a disaster for a couple of months but over a period of time those two talented kids were something else and they picked up on everything and we had a a band that appealed to young people and that's what i wanted a clean cut band Hmm. and we did that and then became close friends with dick clark we did that show several times dick clark tours and all kinds of things and uh, that was the real way the champs got together
0: so i've got a question for you so seals and cross so dash cross was the drummer right Yes. yes. And, and Jim Seals was a sax player. Right. So, you know, most of us only know those guys as being kind of mellow singer songwriters right. in the early 70s, like about seven, you know, uh, what's the song I'm thinking of? Um, Diamond Girl. Diamond Girl. Yeah. All those songs. Uh, so I had no idea. I thought they were guitar players and singers, but the obviously multi-talented fellas. Yeah, ex- extremely talented.
2: And uh, what a lot of people don't know is Jimmy Seals was the Texas junior state champion fiddle player. Mm. Uh, I mean, this guy could play anything. You just give him an instrument and give him half an hour and he's got it. And uh, Dash became a really good drummer. And, of course, you know the future what happened with those guys. Sure. And uh, uh, we lost our bass, our, uh, bass player. Uh, Van Norman off off of our first tour, he was unfortunately uh, in an automobile wreck and we lost him. So we had to replace him with Bobby Morris, who was a great musician. Uh, he was from Oklahoma originally, but had lived in Bakersfield, worked with Buck Owens and Merle Haggard. And uh, we had a bunch of country boys and Bobby was the Oklahoma Junior State Championship fiddler. So as we're traveling down the road, I got twin fiddles going on all the time. It was fun, Yeah. Bunch of country boys playing rock and roll. You know, I don't know what we were. They called us the first Latin rock band. I guess that's what we were. But, um, yeah, that uh, groove on tequila. I mean, oh yeah. Yeah. Well, we've got it, you know, timeless. uh, I, we, we had an album coming out. We had to rush in and do an album. And, uh, the record label they had never had anything like us or any success like us so they put this album out and they call it go champs go it doesn't even say tequila on it well the album didn't do too good i think it sold 10 copies maybe and uh, so i've always wanted to make up for that uh, i never felt that we really had a champs album that was what i wanted it to be hence this new album, which I'm so excited about, because it's something I've dreamed of for all these years, doing it right, doing it the way I've always imagined it could be. And it's more than I imagined it could be. And, and uh, I'm so excited about it. I can't believe it's happening at this point in time.
1: Yeah, that's Craig's, awesome. Craig sent us a lot of the tunes, and uh, which I appreciated, and and uh, they sound fantastic. Well, thank so, you. How, tell us a little bit more about that process, you know, for you and kind of, you know, kind of, a. it sounds like a labor of love, obviously, but, you know, tell us, tell us a little more about it. Well, it, it was a labor of love and it's taken, you know, several years for me to get it
2: the way I want it. And we cut a lot more songs, more sides than are on this album. We tried to pick the cream of the crop. Sony Records wanted me to do this and they paid for it. And uh, then... A fellow by the name of Jeff Hubbard came up with the idea and called me and said, uh, I've known Jeff for a long time. He's a promoter from Indiana and uh, nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. And he said, uh, I'd like to do a a record on tequila, but a different kind of a version, a party record. And I said, that sounds great. He said, well, would you sanction it? And I said, absolutely. He found a band somewhere in Indiana that could copy the champs and they did, and they did a great job. And I said, I've got an album that I just about got finished uh, with Sony. I said, the A&R man that was working with me at Sony when I was producing it passed away. And I don't know, nothing's happening with the product. So let me call Sony and see if we can get it. So I did. And we did. We got those sides. Awesome. 15 or 16, went through them, and everybody loved them. They said, my gosh, this is great. And I said, well, let me finish it up, and we'll see what we have. So I went with Danny Bailey. who was a studio in Columbia, Kentucky. And we worked on the sides and got them the way we wanted them, and, and here we are. I have to ask, who did you get to say tequila? I did. You did? Yeah. <laughs> For all these years, yeah. I've developed a whiskey voice through age and mold, and rot, you know, <laughs> rotting slowly is just. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you deserve to say it, man. I mean, thank gosh, you. you deserve to have this record come out too, that and the way you have well, envisioned it all these years. Thank you. Uh, you know, uh, I only hope that everybody enjoys it and likes it
2: as much as I have uh, enjoyed producing it, because uh, I think we got what we were after. And, and I hope so.
1: I was reading online just, you know, about this, you know, to keep on the theme of the tequila theme a little bit longer here, but um, you know, the song's been in, like I mentioned earlier, countless movies and TV shows since 1958, everything from Family Guy to Happy Days to Miami Vice to Cheech and Chong to Hairspray. But I specifically remember going to the movie theater in the eighties and it was really to me uh, Pee Wee Herman's big adventure in 1985 that seemed to revive the song, you know, for generations to come. Uh, can you take us back, Dave, if you will, to that time? And what was, you know, was that a surprise to you at the time? Was it, you know, can you tell us, tell us about that time for you? And the song was kind of, just, you know, brought it was, back. of course, uh,
2: unexpected. Right. Uh, you can't imagine something like that happening. That was a blessing, true blessing. Uh, Nat, when The way Pee Wee Herman did that and the way that movie was directed was nothing short of a miracle. It was just incredible. And everybody, from kids to adults, I don't know anybody that ever saw that movie that did, didn't love it. And uh, still going today, strong. And it did. It gave Tequila a whole new life. You know, uh, interesting note, uh, Jose Huervo put some money in Tequila when it first came out. And that told us that their sales went up 600% when tequila came out. Wow. Oh, 100%. Oh, wow. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. That sure
1: is. <laughs> 600%. <laughs> yeah.
2: You should reach out to George Clooney, who actually, um, he invested in a company called Casa Migo some years ago. He was bringing cases of tequila back for friends from a family that he knew down in Mexico. And the border kept saying, are these personal or are you importing? And, He got so tired of being asked that question. He eventually invested in the the tequila company. His signature is on the label. I could see George Clooney having a a commercial with that song as the backdrop. Mm -hmm. We've been working on a commercial idea for another tequila company. Uh, It's not set yet, but I've never used my name or or the champ's name uh, or even tequila as a commercial with all three entities together ever. Mm -hmm. so i want to we're we're thinking about doing a commercial right now for somebody and uh uh, we've done a demo on it already we actually used taco john's for the first commercial that we used a friend of mine was uh, a franchisee with taco john's and asked me to do it and we did it that didn't work out because the franchise something happened but um It worked out with the commercial, and it works really well. And uh, I think we'll probably be doing a commercial pretty soon.
0: You should. You think? I mean, yeah, tequila, tequila still sells strongly. It's Uh, time, (laughs) and everybody knows the song. So, right? Yeah.
1: Well, well, the thing is, it kind of going back a little bit too. Obviously, the song is timeless, but I think it it really is one of those songs. It doesn't matter what age you are; it resonates. You know, we're we're laughing and saying, "Oh, it's a party song." It's a fun song. and It makes song, you, you smile. Yeah. When you look back at all those movies and all those TV shows, there's yeah. a reason why they, they use that song. A, it's a great song, but B, it touches every generation of people. Every, everybody can relate to that song. It makes you feel the good. way. It, yeah. It, sure absolutely. Does. It makes you feel good. It brightens up your day. It's, it
2: was playing and it was playing when we, when we lived in England, my, my dad was a big fan of Henry Mancini, Burt Kemford. um, uh Tijuana Brass and this song, Tequila, was constantly interspersed amongst their other love of opera, which was very bizarre, but yeah. You know, I heard the other day, uh, I think it was Jeff Hubbard that told me that Savary Seroband in Europe just named tequila in the top twenty five greatest recordings of all time. Wow uh, which blew me wow. away. I mean there's our B-side one take again. Hey. <laughs> you oh, never God. know. But sometimes, you know, uh, those old non-digital records that were done quickly, if they sped up a little bit or slowed down a little bit, that's okay. It's dynamics.
0: That's yeah, the charm. And,
2: uh, today, everything is set just with the machineries, uh, and the drum machines, as you know. Uh, I prefer the drummers and the guitar players and the keyboard players being live. I think we lose something with this extreme digital recording and sometimes the analog is better. And that's, that's why I think people are going back to the vinyl again. Yeah. Very reason, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, you, you came from that era of Glenn Campbell and the wrecking crew and all those people who would never have dream of working with pro tools or with digital. Right. Exactly. And speaking of Glenn Campbell, uh, what a lot of people don't know, uh, I wrote 10 songs for, for ricky nelson uh some of which i wrote with jerry fuller and some that jerry fuller had other songs that he wrote for ricky nelson that were successful his tv show at the end of his show you'd always sing a song right well the first first hit we had uh jerry fuller wrote was called traveling man oh yeah i remember that one yeah it's great song Sing at the end of the show and the next day the record was a million copies it was incredible but glenn campbell and jerry fuller and i became the vocal group behind rick nelson after Traveling Man, on through all the rest of those hits up until he moved to, to a Decca records. But everything he had on Imperial, we were the vocal group, and you know, we had a lot of fun. Uh, we show up at radio recorders, they'd call a session, and they play the tracks, and say, so come up with some arrangements. So Ozzy would come in, and Ozzy was running the show. And, oh, you know, guys, now what I want you to do is just take these songs and, and record them, and then I'll come back in three or four hours, and I'll see what you've done. So we'd say, okay, so we'd put our voices on and get everything ready. And about four o'clock in the morning, Ozzy would show up and Rick say, oh boy, here he comes. And he'd listen and he'd say, "Uh, well, that's good. I like what you did, but I think maybe you ought to do them over again. Maybe you could get something a little different, a little better. Okay, Ozzy, we'll. That's helpful. So he'd leave and we'd put him on again and then he'd come back and the sun was already shining. And he'd say, uh, let me hear what you've done now. So we'd play it back for him. He'd say, you know, guys, really, I like what you did the first time better. (laughs) Forget everything I said. Just scratch the second group. And we'd say, fine, we get paid twice. There (laughs) you you go. Yeah. You do a good Ozzy Nelson, by the way. (laughs) I was around him a lot. Yeah. I had a lot of respect for that, man. The whole family was just incredible. I get calls a lot for interviews about Rick Nelson. And through the years I've learned, there's one thing I have to say be- before I do it. I say, look, if you're one nerd on Rick Nelson, you got the wrong guy. Mm-hmm. Because I never saw Rick Nelson do drugs. I never saw him drunk. I never saw him doing anything other than being Mr. Clean Cut that you saw on TV. He, he was a clean cut guy. And uh, his wife was delightful, and they used to come to our house, we'd go to their house, and uh, we were good friends, and, and it's just, what a loss, you know. The, yeah, yeah. No question. Yeah. Well, one of these days, they're going to do the Rick Nelson story, I mean, it's, it's the right way, and it will probably be a big hit movie, because... If he was still alive today, I think he'd still be making hit records. Well, there there seems to be a resurgence about that era. I mean, they're doing a movie with Tom Hanks and uh, about the Colonel and 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 uh, Steve, um, what's his name, the the uh, writer. Uh, I'm working with him too. The the Elvis Presley uh, comeback special producer, Steve Binder. I'm actually doing the book right now with Steve Binder, who's the producer and director of that show. But there seems to be a resurgence of that the interest in that time, you know, it doesn't surprise me that they would do a Rick Nelson story. They'll probably go all the way back to Ozzy and Harriet and the brothers. You know, you mentioned Elvis, my My wife, my wife and I have been married 60 years now. Congratulations. Yeah, congrats, That's He was only 15 when we met both in Hollywood. Uh, she had her friends and I had mine. We were, they were pretty much all in the music business. Or in the entertainment business in some way or another. She was a dancer. That's how we met. And uh, uh, she did three movies with Elvis uh, Viva Las Vegas, Blue Hawaii, and Kissing Cousins. Wow. Elvis invited us to his birthday party in Las Vegas, and we flew up there with Tom Jones and his wife. Wow. We can
1: stop um, there. (laughs) Yeah, that's fantastic. (laughs) Nice talking to you, Dave.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Incredible night, I'll tell you. Wow. And Elvis was a ultimate Southern gentleman. He played the piano while Tom Jones sang. He, he didn't want to sing in front of Tom Jones. Uh, really? That blew wow. me away too, you know? Yeah. Uh, he was just a gentleman. Yeah.
1: yeah. So cool. So looking, I got to ask Dave, when I, when I read your bio originally, and I, you know, I touched on it on the front end of this 700 copyrights, you know, can you talk to us a little bit about the songwriter aspect of your life and just sure. that craft? Cause clearly you've had, major names and major success and, and people that have that uh that you worked with but talk to us about the craft in general well songwriting has always been my passion
2: uh i'd rather do that than anything i can think of it's uh, i started writing when i was a teenager as i mentioned before and i'm still writing today in fact i think i'm writing more today than i ever have i'm more critical of my songs today i've learned how to hone my craft a little bit i think um when I was on the road with the champs, I was missing my wife. We were married. She's doing movies and things and television shows and commercials. And here I am out on the road. We're missing each other. And, and uh, so I wrote, I sat down and I wrote a song called I'll Be There When You Get Lonely. Wrote it to her, never thinking that anything would ever happen for uh, with it. And anyway, Ray Price recorded it. It was a hit for him. It's in his greatest hits album. The Commodores did it um joe stafford recorded it mitch miller produced it with joe stafford wow. um there's been quite a few versions of that song you know that's something that i've noticed it's missing today when you wrote a hit song in the 50s 60s and sometimes even into the 70s and somebody would go in to do an album as you would probably recall they would want to record record a current hit uh, because they wanted uh titles in the album that people would recognize recognizable titles they call them and so they record your song you might get 10 15 20 recordings of your hit song today that doesn't happen Right. once in a while but not as much that's unfortunate because uh there's a lot of stuff in albums that you probably noticed the lead song will be a hit now maybe be one more and the rest of it is uh self-indulgence let's mm. say uh and that's a shame because those songs, we're missing some of those great songs. Not that there aren't some great songs being written today. I'm not saying that at all. Some of these new writers are the most talented I've ever heard. Mm. Right. But uh, we need more Chris Christophersons.
0: Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. sure.
2: Yeah. Write no those kidding. songs that you just put on my cleanest sturdy shirt. What a line. Yeah. I love <laughs> what they call wow lines and songs. War and Zevon, mm-hmm. people like that, yeah. So, wor- wor- lyrics or music first for you? Lyrics. I, idea, you know, uh, you can write songs all day long, and they can be a hit. I'll give you a good example. You can take the greatest singer in the world, put him in the studio with a bad song, and nothing's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Take somebody who can barely carry a tune, take him in the studio with a hit song, produce it right, and you can have a number one record. May not have another one, but you'll have one. It's the song. Uh, yeah. It's a great art to keep the, the track record going. But it all comes down to the song. And great lyrics that touch people's hearts. And melodies that are re- memorable melodies that you can't get out of your mind that wake you up in the middle of the night and keep you awake. Mm-hmm. That happens to me all the time. Also, I've had some strange things happen. And I've talked to other songwriters that have had similar situations i woke up in a motel room one night and i had this great idea for a song and i grabbed the pen and i found a piece of paper there in the motel and i wrote a song melody words everything put it down went back to sleep woke up in the morning looked at it and i never changed a note or a word yeah sent it to uh it was recorded by a bunch of people but uh hank snow uh I can't even remember all the people that did it. Um, uh, It was called Love is So Elusive. Uh, And and I don't know where it came from. Those are things that we can't explain. I mean, in my sleep, Uh, that's kind of weird. (laughs) You've produced some pretty remarkable people as well, haven't you? Well, I've been fortunate enough to, yes, I have some remarkable talented people that I've been able to work with. Uh, Don McLean. I did six albums with Don McLean during the period of time for the seven years that I managed him. And wow. uh, I can remember mastering his greatest hits album. And we were sitting there in Nashville, Tennessee, on top of a hill in this mastering studio that Denny Purcell owned at that time. The sun was setting and you could see it off in the woods. <clears throat> it was filtering down through the trees. And Denny said, can you imagine anything being better than listening to Vincent? watching that sunset on top of this hill in Nashville. It was just a magic moment. Don is not only a great songwriter, but a great singer. Yeah. yeah. I enjoyed doing all six albums. with Yeah. I, bet. And I understand he has a new album coming out too, which I'm happy about. That's good. I haven't met Don yet, but I was pulled in to do illustrations on a new book that he's working on called American Pie. And uh, it's a children's book and it's based on, this little boy who's a paper he has a paper route in New Rochelle, and you can guess the rest of it. And yeah, it's 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 a, it's, a uh, it's an intimidating project because it is such a, an iconic song. So I'm I'm slowly working on the illustrations for that. Well, that that's um, I'm glad you're working on that because that'll be a major project. Every time American Pie gets played on the radio or TV, Don gets five performances that's how many millions of performances that song has earned oh my goodness it just wow. keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and uh, i remember talking to don one day and he says i'm tired of singing that song that's all anybody wants to talk about that's all they want to hear and i said well there's you can solve that don very easily yourself right one is good or better Yeah, that's easier said than done, (laughs) and it's probably true, you know. But uh, you do get tired sometimes of playing the same songs. You know, I I think back about the way we traveled with the Champs. We had a Chrysler station wagon pulling an instrument trailer. We traveled 150,000 miles a year. Wow! We didn't have a bus with bunk beds and a kitchen and bathrooms and all the stuff. Uh, We were stopping and uh getting fried foods for dinner every night and uh, when i got off the road i'd lost so much weight i it was pathetic it was time for me to get off the road and that's when uh uh, i hired glenn campbell to take my place but that didn't last too long because that guy was so talented
1: i had the pleasure of working on um that last tour uh that glenn did and um I was amazed because, you know, a lot of what I do on the concert side is marketing and PR. And so I'll line up a lot of the interviews um, that people do. And over those couple of years um, there at the end, he was still doing phoners. And then eventually it went to, you know, email only questions. And eventually his, I think his daughter started to take over some of that stuff, but they couldn't have been more gracious and accommodating with. To be quite honest, they didn't need to do a lot of the things that we were doing. We're just, we're just passing along, hey, here's an opportunity if you want to do it. But they just did such a good job of being great people um, through that whole process. Um, and then they ended up, obviously, the movie came out, which was really, which was really uh, well, well done. It was unique. Uh, yeah. you know, uh, when my wife and I decided
2: to become parents, and we had two children, we moved to Montana. We left California and moved to Montana. And we had a 10-party line up there. the people that don't know what a 10-party line is, that's mean, when your phone rings, 10 pe- people answer the phone pretty much. And uh, so Glenn would call me. He was doing True Grit with uh, the Duke. Yeah, And he yeah, called sure. me every night, and he'd tell me about what happened that day. And he says, boy, it's just the director is just giving me, was it Peckinpah or one of those? directors he said it's just giving me all kinds of trouble he says i don't know what to do he says he tells me to bring my voice down He you know glenn talk like this hi i'm glenn campbell and uh, he says my voice gets high and he says i'm riding my horse alongside the duke and he said i look at him and i see the duke and i'm supposed to say uh, my my lines and he said
1: my voice goes back up
2: and he says, <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, we shoot the whole scene again and he says they're blaming me for everything and i said well glenn just Forget it's the Duke uh, and, and uh, just do what the director says. And you'll be fine, which he did. And uh, he didn't do great in the movie, unfortunately, but it was okay. But um, there's so many Brian Campbell stories that I can tell you that it just went on and on and on. Glenn was a character. I know. had the good fortune of seeing, I was on a boat to the island off the coast of, just across from Toronto. And they, they used to have the Mariposa Folk Festival In Toronto, and I was on a boat with Joni Mitchell. Um, not personally, I was just staring at her and and speechless. (laughs) But we, when we got to the island, another boat arrived, it had Bob Dylan. It was quite the day. Bob Dylan was there, Joni was there, um, Bruce Coburn was there, Vassar Clements was there, Johnny Hartford and Glenn showed up. So it was, it was quite a day, yeah. Yeah, And and they were just playing in little tense just like Vassar and Johnny played together and they were just there was about 20 people standing around watching them it was very personable hmm. I'll never forget that day oh, yeah. those are the kind of things awesome. you never forget and and it's amazing when you get that much talent together how much one talent plays off of another one and it just gets bigger and bigger and if you can be be involved in a situation like that what a thrill and that's something like you just said you never forget yeah, well, I was a spec. I was a spectator, but still, yeah, I didn't have the good fortune of playing with them like you did. But yeah, well, uh, it was good fortune. I, I remember one time I was called for a session with uh, uh, the new Christie Minstrel Singers in Hollywood. I don't know if you remember them or not. Oh, sure. They yeah, had big hits. And uh, they called me in. I played on a demo. I played my little Martin guitar on a demo, and and uh, they called me in for the session. And I didn't know. What I was supposed to do, but I got there, and I see two guitar players sitting in two seats, two chairs, and there's a chair in between them, and I'm supposed to sit in that chair. And I look at the one, and it's Barney Kessel. Uh, oh wow! The other it's one's Lorendo Amiata. Oh wow! And I just I withdrew into an eggshell, and I said, "What am I doing here?" And they said, "We can't play that lick that you played on that." I said, "It's so simple." I said. I don't even remember what I did. And they played it for me. He said, it's all you have to do is play that lick again like he did on the demo. I said, okay. So I did. And uh, that was a big thrill for me to get to just be in a studio with those guys because sure. uh, I, I was a wannabe guitar player. I still am. And uh, to be with the two world's greatest at that time, I guess, was great. Uh, another story that you'll get a kick out of. I mentioned my wife was a dancer. She had a manager by the name of Mel Shower. This is going to blow your mind. Mel uh, <laughs> invited us over to their house in Beverly Hills for dinner one night. And there was Les Paul and Mary Ford. Oh, there. wow. So we had dinner and Les says, Dave, he says, I got to tell you, I love your record. It's just great. And I said, well, I love all your records. They're just great. He says, I happen to have a prototype of a new guitar that I just designed in the trunk of my car. Would you like to see it? No. I said, I would love to. So he <laughs> went out in his car and he brought in this new gold Les Paul model prototype. He said, play it and see if you like it. And I did. And I said, that's a great guitar. He said, it's yours. He's taking with you. It's yours. My present wow. to you. He's take wow. it on the road and play it. Well, I didn't know what I had in my hands at that time. Nobody would have known. But I played that guitar for six months, and I used to move quite a bit on the stage, and it kept rubbing my hip bone here. Uh, it was a heavy guitar. And so I put some foam pad on the back, and, and, and uh, that didn't seem to help. So I finally put it back in the trailer with the other instruments, and I got my old Gibson out. And I went on playing my electric Gibson. You know, I gave that guitar to somebody. I don't know who I gave it to, even. Uh, but it's worth somebody told me about a million dollars today oh my goodness oh at least probably easily yeah Uh, isn't that something
0: (laughs) Go find that guy get it it back (laughs) (laughs) i I want it back
2: yeah (laughs) i want it back I, i only knew who i even gave it to i would like to congratulate him on you never know the destiny of those those pieces of memorabilia i had a good friend a musician from Toronto, record at Ringo Starr's studio in Wales at one point. And in the cloakroom was a drum skin that said the Beatles on it. And he thought, well, that can't be. You know, he looked at it and thought, could that possibly be that drum skin? And sure enough, it was the Ed Sullivan drum skin. Oh, Oh, boy. It sold recently. It sold in 2015 for $2.7 million, the drum skin. Yeah.
1: Mm. Yeah. So, Dave, for over forty years, you managed the publishing affairs for Hank Williams Jr., right? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, when I
2: met Hank, he had fallen off the mountain, and he was all swathed in bandages. You know, everybody knows uh, who's a fan of Hank uh, would know that he fell off that mountain and was. It's amazing that he's still with us. Uh, Mm. He was so such in bad shape. And uh, he said he wanted to start a publishing company what I started for him and run it for him. And I, this was in 1976. And I said, yes, I would love to work with you and, and do it. And we did. And uh, we've been together ever since on a handshake. Hank is one of the most amazing awesome. people I've ever met. If there's nobody more loyal than Hank Jr. and more talented, my gosh, the songs that guy's written. Mm-hmm. In fact, I have to tell you, uh, I just did the biggest close, the biggest deal I've ever done with Subway on uh, Monday Night Football song for Hank. Huh? It's a major mm-hmm. deal. It starts this year, and then they have options for, for uh, next year, too. Uh, uh, All My Rowdy Friends is, of course, a song that's used on Monday Night Football. They just change the lyrics around a little bit. But uh, how do you beat that song? Mm-hmm. That's uh, mm-hmm. that's a standard, like, American Pie Oh, yeah. And, sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he has songs that that probably most people don't know about. The, the title song of one of his albums called Lone Wolf. That may be my favorite song Hank's ever written. And I've tried to get people to agree to you know with me on, and record that song. But one of these days, I'll get somebody to record it. But it's great. We have uh, Josh Turner right now has a big hit on one of Hank's songs called Country State of Mind which was number one with Hank written by Hank and Roger Allen Wade, two great writers. And uh, it's been a pure joy to work with Hank.
1: Yeah. He, I've, I've worked on a lot of shows over the years with Hank on it and like he'll be on tours with Kid Rock and, you know, Kid Rock live, you know, love him or hate him. He's an amazing live show. And Hank jr. He can stand up there and, and open or close a Kid Rock show. That's saying a lot. <laughs> you know, yeah, well, you know, Kid Rock, if you talk to Kid Rock, he'll tell you that his
2: inspiration for being in the music business was Hank Jr. Hank was appearing in Detroit. Right. And Kid Rock says, I want to be like that. That's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And he's done it. And good for him. Oh, that's right. And they've become dear friends.
1: So, Dave, you know, all of these many years that you've been in the business, various aspects, you know, you've got one of the biggest well-known songs, you know, in the history of music, but also all of these other different, you know, roads that you've traveled down. What is What drives you in this business and what advice would you give people today that want to be in this business, whether a musician or any aspect? Well, you know, I don't want to sound corny
2: because I've heard People say what I'm going to say before. It's not unique to me. But if you have a dream, there's something you love in your heart. Don't let anybody talk you out of it. I remember vividly when I wanted my first guitar and I wanted to write country songs and be a country boy. My mother said, no, no, no. You're going to play the piano if you play anything and you're not going to write country songs. Well, I'm glad I didn't listen to my mother that time. Uh, and she later came back. She said, boy, was I wrong about that? But uh, follow your dream. Uh, if you have a dream, you want to be in the music business, do it. Just hang in there. But most importantly, pick those people that inspire you, the most talented people you can think of, and, and play off of their talent. Learn from them. Uh, never stop learning. I learn something every day of my life. Um, I hope I never stop. Uh, i'm not even close to where I would like to be uh, and that's good because that inspires you to keep reaching for a higher star uh, a bigger level
1: that's and the artist
2: that's the artist in you it's it's uh, creative uh, people are that way I think actors writers singers painters uh, we all try to be better and extend ourselves and extend our talent and if we don't it's sinful because God gave us this talent. We should hone it and appreciate it and do the most with it. Amen. One of my, you know, my, my main process in life is to design album covers. I've often wondered when you are a, a dedicated singer-songwriter such as yourself, do you ever think about image? Do you ever think about what a good cover should look like? Or have you seen covers that you really enjoy Um for their shelf appeal, for how they, they re- reached you when you first saw them? Or do, do you think the album cover is just so secondary to what you do because the music is all important? Well, I think the music is all important, but equally important is the tremendous artistic design from some of these people like yourself who uh, put our albums on the market. You could have the greatest album in the world with bad design and nobody's going to look at it. I mean, that's a that cuts both ways. So, uh, that that does cut both ways. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much, Dave, for joining us on the Music Buzz podcast today. We truly appreciate your time. Uh, we want to encourage everybody out there to look for Tequila Party, a new album that's out, vinyl, etc. And um, we're going to end the show by playing Tequila today. And just want to thank you so much for your time. Wish you nothing but the best of luck um, as you, you. continue thank your career. Questions. For inviting me, I've enjoyed being
2: with you guys and and. Uh, uh, you're an inspiration to all three of you because you're all very talented obviously and have done some great things and it's my pleasure believe me oh it's our pleasure great to talk to you Dave all the best in your next projects thank you, and you yeah man
0: thank you keep cranking it keep cranking oh yeah we're gonna keep cranking you bet thank you